Radio Mano Papachango. Cape Town, South Africa, which is definitely one of the most beautiful cities in the world uh, that I've seen. It's one of those places like San Francisco, Rio de Janeiro, Manhattan, that uh, were incredibly beautiful before there was ever a city here. Uh, it was definitely a place that whatever people were living here way back in the day must have recognized as a sacred um, and unbelievably beautiful place. Just the, the, you know, Table Mountain, which of course is famous around the world. Everyone's seen images of that. But the air is clean. The sun shines with that sort of spectacular San Francisco glow. And um, it's, it's just a lovely place. Uh, I'm just back from a 10-day safari that began in Vinhook, Namibia, crossed through Botswana, uh, back into Namibia in the north. There's sort of a panhandle situation going on up there. And then uh, we were in the Okavango Delta, I think it's pronounced, and which is a huge river system that, unlike almost any other river, doesn't end in the ocean. Uh, you know, the, the advice you get is if you get lost, just follow water downstream, and eventually you'll come to a city or the ocean, of, you know, if you really follow it a while. Uh, in this case, you would come to a giant swamp where the entire river spreads out like the fingers of a hand and then sinks slowly into the earth. Very interesting. Uh, anyway, that's the Okavango River, Okavango Delta. I was there for a couple nights camping along the side, went out on some boats and, you know, saw crocodiles and all sorts of uh, interesting critters. And uh, then we went to along the Okavango River, camped out along there, and then ended at Victoria Falls. Any of you who follow me on Instagram are by now, uh, no doubt, completely sick of my photos of waterfalls. Understandably so. Anyway, I'm back in Cape Town. And this is one of the episodes, one of the very few episodes in which there will not be a long introduction because the introduction is sort of embedded in the conversation I had with Simon van Gent, I think is the way his name is pronounced. Uh, interesting story of how I got in touch with this guy. He's um, actually someone whose voice has been in my head for over a decade now, uh, but I just met him yesterday. We recorded this podcast, and I am going to throw it up pretty much raw. Um, next time you're thinking, God damn, Chris, these intros are too long, man. You go on and on. Well, just remember this one where I didn't go on and on. I got right to it, and so you owe me a few minutes. That's the way I look at it. Uh, okay, one last thing to keep in mind, those of you who are listening to this on iTunes or some other phone device or whatever. I recorded, uh, I think, four songs that uh, you'll hear in the podcast. I'll, I'll 
embed the songs into the conversation, even though we had the whole conversation and then Simon played some songs. Um, so chronologically, you know, the songs all came at the end, but I'll, I'll drop them in here. And uh, But if you want to see the videos that I recorded of him playing the songs, go to my website, chrisryanphd.com. Look at podcast Tangentially Speaking. That takes you right there. You can also just go to tangentiallyspeaking.com because one of those clever internet things, it all goes to the same place. Imagine that. Uh, that's it. Simon van Gent. Very cool guy, as you'll hear. Very smart, thoughtful, beautiful singer. Uh, and he writes some amazing songs. And so I'm going to play you in, actually, with one of his songs. It's the song that touches me most deeply um, and it's a song you'll hear the story it was passed along to me a long time ago uh, 2001 probably and uh, it's been on my iTunes five-star shuffle ever since so I've heard this song drifting off to sleep waking up in the morning driving down the road in the car all over the place and finally got to meet the guy who emerged from yesterday. Stand. 
ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is why I like doing this podcast. I woke up this morning and I was doing some bullshit on my computer and I had my iTunes going and just random shuffle on the, my uh, favorite pieces of music and a piece of music came on, Dreamboats which I've been listening to. It's been on that shuffle for since 1999, I think. When did that record come out? 2001. So since 2001. And so I've, I've listened to it a lot. Dreamboats, Infinite Panic. And wow, that, okay, that's the very first album. Your first record, I'm, I'm right? I'm amazed that, that, that you have that. I had no idea that so, album reached And there's so another long. song, um, Another time, in another time, in another time. That's from the same record, right? Yeah, that's that um, that version actually. In fact, Dreamboats and In Another Time reappeared on my next album. You see, because that uh, that very first album I basically just recorded with a computer and a microphone, right? Um, in a room with no budget, right? Um, <laughs> and and then, in fact, I recorded that in Italy when I was staying in Italy for three months. Um, and then I brought the, the recordings back to Cape Town and a friend of mine heard them and just got really excited and said, we've got to put this out. Um, and so we then went into a studio and overlaid some bass and mm. a couple of instruments and some harmonies. But those, the last four tracks on the album, including In Another Time um, and Lazy Boy was another one, were actually recorded previous to that in a studio um, with a friend of mine, Ben, ben Amato, who, who's a producer. And we'd been collaborating for years and been messing around in the studio and producing these kind of, uh, in fact, I think those, those last four tracks are a little bit overproduced. They're kind of very, it doesn't have that directness of the guitar mm. and the voice and right. the, you know, the, that the rest of the album ha has. Right. They almost don't really belong on the same album, but we just put them there because we were just yeah. putting everything that I'd recorded right. up to that point out. Um, so I, so the song came up, and I'm sitting here in Cape Town in my my stepdaughter's house, and and uh, I thought, isn't that guy from South Africa? I think I remember hearing he was from South Africa. So I Google your name, Simon van. Van Gent. Gent. Van Gent, yeah. And, uh, and there, sure enough, there's your website, and I look at the bio, and Simon lives in Cape Town. I thought, wow, that guy's in Cape Town. Hmm, I wonder, maybe I can get his permission to use one of his songs on the podcast. And uh, so I'm writing you an email, and then I thought, well, fuck it, if he, if he answers, maybe he's in town and I can actually get him to do a podcast. And you answered within five minutes. Right. And now it's three hours later and we're sitting here together. It's amazing. Now I'll tell you how I heard your music. I was invited to an ecstasy conference in Israel in 1999. <laughs> That's like one of my best invitations ever. Um, and all the people in the world who were working with ecstasy were there. All these scientists and doctors and clinical use and all that. And um, the conference was sponsored by the Israeli military who were interested in using ecstasy to treat PTSD in mm -hmm. their soldiers, mm -hmm. which is a mm -hmm. wonderful uh, application. Mm -hmm. And I think, now I, I, I gathered from the nature of the questions that were being asked by some of these military people, that they were also interested in possible application and interrogation as well. Mm. So it was a very interesting conference at the Dead Sea Hyatt. And my roommate 
was a guy who did um, design work for a magazine uh, for an organization called MAPS, a Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and they were uh, running the conference. And I'd been working with them for a while, which is why I was invited. Anyway, he and I, his name's Mark Plummer, he and I hung out, we had a couple of beers, talked about music. He, he really enjoys music, knows a lot about it, much more than I did. And uh, then I went back to Spain. He went back to Portland, Oregon, where he was living. Mm. This is 99. Next thing I know, I get a package in the mail of CDs that he had burned for me, 15 or 20 CDs. And I swear, every one of those CDs was full of fantastic music, exactly my taste in music mm. that I had never heard of. Mm. So, of course, I wrote him a very you know, grateful email thanking him and da da da. A couple weeks later, I get another package, and then another package, and then another package. The, the guy must have sent me 100 or 150 right. CDs of music, just turning me on to stuff. Right. You know, like, you might like this, you might like that. So he turned me on to your music. That's why I had that. Uh, I'm wondering how he got all the yeah, music. Cause, well, because we only, we only, I think we only burned maybe a hundred and probably about a hundred copies of that album and that's all that's ever been made <laughs> really uh, well i wrote him an email we can you know so 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 it's a very small group of people who actually got hold of that first album and the fact that that uh, just blows so you're my, like blows you're my like mind. the this the south african rodriguez uh, maybe you're really <laughs> big in portland oregon <laughs> and you don't know it yet uh, uh. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the only possible connection I can think is is my friend Kevin Stoloff, who's, who's a psychiatrist. Uh -huh. um, that might have been maybe he knew a, Mark. A connection. Anyway. Well, we'll find out from Mark, but it's, and but, I'll, I'll know, mention you, it. Your story about the ecstasy conference just made me realize a whole thing, and that that album. You know, when I talked about those songs at the end that didn't really fit on the first half of the album, there's actually two versions of Dreamboats on that album. I don't know if you've heard both versions. The one mm. is basically around the acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. There's uh, a flute in the one I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, I think that's the chilled version with you know the more acoustic yeah, version. Yeah, it's very chill. Yeah. But then at the very end of the album there's, so that's Dream, we call the Dreamboats 1.0 and then the, the one at the end is Dream, Dreamboats 1.1. Ah. Um, and that was actually the previous studio version. and. What I'd been toying with, I was, you know, in 1999, I was um, going to trance parties and I was kind of hooked into a scene that was in a way not really where I needed to be, but it was kind of where I'd ended up um, and that did a bit of ecstasy and kind of got excited. I was, you know, I was very like affected by trance music and I kind of got this excited idea in my head of making something that combined folk with trance because mm. I was playing acoustic guitar. So the version of Dreamboats, it's the, 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 the second version, has got this whole kind of trance production or an attempt at trance production. I don't know how successful we were. Um, and then, and I was actually playing in a band that was doing live trance music. Um, we called color fields um, and then this thing happened where and I was I guess I was fairly um, depressed at the time you know in my life I was really kind of struggling to, to, to struggling to figure out who I was and and how to just be in the world um, and I met this woman who was a psychiatrist I was her English teacher um, 
and you know I, I became her, her private tutor for six hours a day for three months while she was in Cape Town and I started opening up to her because when I learned that she was a psychiatrist I realized that there, there didn't need to be secrets if that makes any sense it was kind of like I knew that that, that anything I had to she say would be, would be understood that's and, why I'm married to one right okay <laughs> and um, yeah. And in a way, she kind of saved my life because for the first time in my life, I felt like somebody got me, somebody saw who I really was. Um, and it was, it was coming out of that experience. And there was nothing sexual. It was a very, a very um, contained, it was almost like we were in a bubble. And you were her English teacher. I was her English teacher, but, but you know, we ended up becoming friends and I actually yeah. ended up going and staying in Italy with her and her mm -hmm. family. So ah. those, those songs that I recorded for, for the album I, were, were recorded in her house in Italy. Ah, okay. um, and that is when I connected, I think, with who I, I suppose the kind of music I really needed to be playing. Mm. Um, and the, coming out of that experience, I realized that that whole trance thing, just, that was just not me. Mm. That was a kind of a, you know, trying to be something I wasn't. It's, it's, um, so, so that album kind of encapsulates these two sides of like those four songs at the end are, you know, it's me writing, they're, they're songs I wrote, but they don't really, it's, it's almost me trying to be something I'm not. Mm. And then you'll hear on the rest of the album, that's when I, I got into who I really was. The and version so, I have sounds incredible, has always struck me as being incredibly intimate and yeah. uh, revealing and yeah. naked and yeah. just lovely. Yeah, so that the, I, I guess that's that's the version I recorded in Italy. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the the other version is, has got a kind of a detachment to it. Right. Um, but it's just interesting that you were at an ecstasy conference and this came out of all that, <laughs> and this is you know so connected with what was actually going on yeah. in my life with that yeah. with, with with the album. Yeah, there was no no trance dancing going on at that conference. That was a bunch of old scientists right. and yeah. political people, and yeah. uh, you know a lot of discussion of whether ecstasy was dangerous and how it could be dangerous. Yeah. And well, my you know my insight from ecstasy was, um, I, I guess, it, it completely released me. You know, the times I took it, um, it completely released me from everything that I was that I struggled with. Because most of my, my struggle in life is this kind of feeling of alienation mm. and um, disconnection. And it was the opposite on ecstasy. I, yeah. I trusted everybody. I loved everybody. And, but the, the problem was the next couple of days, I'd be thrown into the opposite of that, um, of this yeah. incredible disconnection and depression. Because and you were embarrassed at how no, open just, you'd just, felt just because, or something? No, just because my brain was depleted of all those uh, the serotonin, serotonin, you know. Yeah. So what it made me realize, the insight I got was that, okay, so my insight, and I don't know if how accurate this is from a um, kind of neuro, neurochemical point of view, but it felt to me like ecstasy was kind of like a painkiller against the, f the, feel the pain you feel when someone rejects you. So you walk up to someone and you start talking to them and, and any kind of, and for, for example, I was at a trance party once and I had this amazing experience of going off for a pee and there was a guy next to me having a pee in the bushes and we started talking and we 
just became the hugest buddies and we, you know we'd, we shared each other's childhoods you know we yeah. just like wanted to know everything and uh, then, then we said cheers and I walked off and there was a group of people standing you know near the dance floor and I started chatting to them and the one woman in the group sort of said whoa you know you're being too intense and now normally in life that would send me into a bit of a depression you know like oh god am I too intense and you know it would like throw me but in yeah. that moment I was yeah. like hang on I don't want to waste my time talking to this group because there's another group over there and I was just so excited to go and talk to the next group right. of people because the I couldn't feel the pain of rejection right because the ecstasy was a buffer against that um, and the insight I got was that it's that fear of the pain that stops me being who I can be in the world it yeah. stops me reaching my potential um, and what I need to do is face that pain um, in other words go into therapy or whatever what, uh, you know that is the route I chose I, I went into, into therapy because it's all about feeling the feelings you're afraid to feel because that's that's the, the thing that keeps you detached that's what makes one alienated is mm. I think that's the insight I got that yeah that the, the route to my freedom is to feel the pain. Whereas, whereas so much of the culture I was in was all about don't feel the pain. Yeah, or don't um, admit to it. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, yeah, that kind of became the turning point for me. And now your last record is called what? Suffer Well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Muhammad Ali stung like a bee But he said he couldn't stand the training But he swallowed the pain Cause he wanted to gain All the things he wound up gaining Dostoevsky said this about those with hearts that love and with minds that know The bigger you are and the more that you care The greater the pain you have to bear And each of us must learn in our own way To silently relate Everything we hate and Sure enough For everyone The time will come For suffering to be done And when it casts its spell I hope you suffer well said this and I agree that all this pain is necessary like squeezing diamonds out of coal it turns a mind into a soul and 
nature's life was strange and dark but what he said was on the mark that we'll survive our suffering by learning to see what it means and each of us must learn in our own way silently relate to everything we hate cause sure enough for everyone the time will come for suffering to be done and when it casts its spell I hope you suffer well Now I'm not saying you've got to bottle it in Sometimes it's good to offload on your friends But everyone has problems of their own And mostly we must learn in our own way to silently relate to everything we hate and sure enough for everyone the time will come for suffering to be done when it casts its spell, I hope you suffer well. about the utility of ecstasy or at least it, its function in your experience because one of the main clinical uses of it is in treating as I said PTSD and people who are suffering from PTSD are trapped because they can't turn and face the pain right they're running from it and yeah. that but it keeps popping up, right? Yeah, it yeah, it, yeah, it yeah, manifests yeah. in their dreams, in their panic attacks, in their sexual dysfunction, and right. all sorts of things. 
And the only way to really deal with it is to turn and face it and re-experience the traumatic event, mm. but with a sense of control this time. Right. And the ecstasy, and coupled with a therapeutic relationship with someone you really trust, who's there to guide you and protect you and make sure everything's all right, that enables people to turn and re-experience the traumatic event in a way that then flushes it out of their system forever. Right. Because now it's a memory that they have control of, not a memory that's got them under its control, you know? Hmm. I have a, a guy actually that I met at that conference did his doctoral research in Madrid using um, MDMA uh, in psychotherapy with women who had been sexually uh, traumatized and hadn't responded to any other type of treatment, whether you know uh, chemical or, or talk therapy or anything. So it was really a last ditch effort, um, which is the only reason the government approved his research. And his success rate was, I think, over 80%. Mm. You know, fantastic success rate. Mm. So, yeah, it's, but when you told me your story, I was thinking, you know, you said you, you didn't feel the pain, you were buffered from it. And yet, the image I had in my head when you told the story was that the pain just went past you. It wasn't that you were buffered, it didn't bounce off, at least my image. It's that you chose not to feel it. Um, it's an interesting... You're an artist, right? Yeah, yeah. So you get a lot of rejection. Yeah. People don't buy as many records as you hope yeah, they will. Yeah, yeah. Not as many people come to your show as you hope they will. The reviews might not be as positive as you want all the time. I'm in the same boat. You know, you write yeah. a book. Yeah. A lot of people think you're full of shit and they make sure to tell you. You can choose whether or not to feel that to yeah. some extent. Yeah. Isn't rejection a part of life that we choose to focus on or not? Um, I think it's a physical feeling that, that um, it's got to do with how willing you are to, oh, it's a hard one. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about my experience when I was on ecstasy and that, that, that it didn't hurt yeah. at all when that woman said to me, you're too intense. Um, and what's going on there? What is what is going on new in the neurochemical realm? You know, it's like I've got so much serotonin in my, in my brain that, that 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 you know, rejection feels you feel it. It's a it's an uncomfortable feeling. It's not just a cognitive thing. It's I think. Yeah, but before you experience it as rejection. I feel like there's a, and, and maybe this is my own defense mechanisms being exposed here, but I feel like there's a, there's a moment, like, like the woman says, you're, you're being too intense. Uh, my feeling might be, well, okay, you know, maybe you're not intense enough, you know? Yeah, but that, that, that's if, you, if you're coming at it, at it as someone who's got enough of a sense of self to not care whether someone thinks you're intense enough or not. Right. But when, you, when you're fragile, um, and I think what makes people fragile ultimately is their fear of rejection and how, how, how much that hurts, mm. going back to some childhood memory, I guess. Or b back to prehistory. 
you know, the worst thing that could happen to you yeah. as a, a you know, pre-modern human yeah. is being rejected by yeah. your band. Because yeah. that amounts to death. Right. right? Interdependency yeah, is everything. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but in terms of the individual and your history, your personal history, um, you know, how, how, how well you do in the world is all about how you handle that fear, you know, or how much it impacts you. Yeah. And I, well, I speak only from my own experience, but that's been the key issue for me is, is um, how I handle that feeling mm. and whether it sends me spiraling down or whether I can stay afloat when that feeling happens. And it's, it's all about um, learning to, to deal with that feeling. There's a song on your new record that's very much about this. I don't remember the name right now. I just listened to it this morning. Uh, you, you, the, the chorus is, I, I only wanted to feel safe again, something like that. That's, that's not my latest record. That's the previous album. That's uh, Blinking and Breathing. Oh, the okay, new, the new right. album is called Suffer Well. So that's that, called your mother at the shop where she yeah, worked. That, that, just, that's, that's a particular memory that came out in therapy. Um, you know, I completely buried that experience. And um, yeah, one day in therapy, I just remembered this thing happening, um, which I think was, you know, an example of what was probably something that was summed up kind of what I, what I was experiencing as a child. Yeah, was not, not feeling safe and right. and reaching to the people who were they who should have been making me feel safe right your brother and his friends yeah well yeah i mean i don't you know it's it's i, th I don't want to make this too personal <laughs> it's <laughs> on the record but, but i think this is a general thing in the world yeah. that you know how, however much you get taught as a child that that when you when you're afraid and vulnerable that you're okay mm. you internalize that but if you, if when you're afraid and vulnerable and needing, in, in, needing to be comforted, instead you're told no, you you must grow up and you must learn to, you know, that life is shit and you've got to cope with it. And, <laughs> exactly. Uh, go, you, go sleep in your room yeah, kind alone. Of thing. And I think yeah. that happens to a lot of people. And I think in the it's, West, I think, it sure I does. think it's um, yeah. that's that's maybe the root of all the stuff I'm talking about now in terms of this feeling of rejection and how you handle it. Um, we want to feel safe. Yeah. We're all looking for a way to feel safe. I can remember a scene from when I was only four. I was walking with my brother and his friends along down the road I was only looking for a way to feel safe once more everybody was safe one time before the blinking and breathing crying and then my brother and his friends began Pelting me with stones, I cried and I ran Back to the house, there was no one at home I was only looking for a way to feel safe once more 
Everybody was safe one time Before the blinking and breathing crime I ran through the gate and I ran through the door I called up my mom where she worked at the store She said, don't call here, I've told you before I was only looking for a way to feel safe once more Everybody was safe one time Before the blinking and breathing cries Everybody was safe one time Before the blinking and breathing and crying I ran to my bed and I howled at the wall Screamed and I cried till my body was sore Then I decided to hide in my core Decided that I wouldn't cry anymore I was only looking Way to feel safe once more. Everybody was safe one time before the blinking and breathing crying. Before the blinking and breathing crying. Before the blinking and breathing crying. Before the blinking and breathing and crying. That's all we do when, we, when we're tiny kids and our brains are growing and learning how to be in the world. We, yeah. We're looking for safety, I guess. Well, I would argue, and I, and I have argued, that um, modern civilization essentially cultivates that fear, amplifies it, and then offers us false... Um, remedies for right, it. exactly. Yeah, yeah, like yeah generally, yeah. your consu consumption. Yeah, exactly. You know, no, you'll feel safe if you put a yeah. big alarm on yeah. your house and yeah, you have a big yeah. car and yeah. you get a you know have, carry yeah, a gun. Yeah, yeah. In America, yeah. America is the most fearful place I've ever been. Yeah, and yet they think they're a superpower. Right, you know, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, have you ever toured in the states? I did it um, a month in the States in September of 2014. Um, oh. What I did was I, I got hold of a website called concertsinyourhome.com and, and organized a bunch of house concerts. Mm. All these people scattered throughout the world, really, who like to have people come and play in their living rooms oh, and they invite cool. their friends and have an, a little event. That's great. Um, and I also got hold of everyone I knew who lived in America and just... Well, on the East Coast, because I, I, I was based in Philadelphia and I did New York and Boston as well. And a, bit, a couple of gigs like around New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, but all, yeah, all just through the grapevine. A mm. um, couple of shows in New York. But, you know, you go to New York and no one knows who you are. And, you know, it's very... I played, I played at um, 
the Rockwood Music Hall, which is quite a cool venue. A lot of you know well-established people play there. But I got given the the first slot in the evening, and you know who was I right. in this huge city? And a couple of my friends came, and that everyone's still at dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so was, so yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's tricky. You know, you go you you go out into the world, and it's you're just one of millions of people trying to trying to do this thing of carrying a guitar around and, right. and singing. You know. Right. Um, well, you're very good. There's no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's a lot of competition in my uh, top five-star rotation. Let me tell you. <laughs> right. Thank you. Yeah, you you stuck, you, you held on there. Uh, I mean, Mark introduced me that same period. He introduced me to to give you a sense. Uh, uh, Bill Laswell, do you know him? Oh, uh, fantastic oh. uh, bass player. He played with Material. Uh, along with um, Brian Eno okay. and David Byrne, very experimental okay. New York 70s kind of stuff. Right. And then he really got into uh, production and to the point where he has been granted access to um, Bob Marley's original studio recordings, some of the Hendrix stuff, some, uh, I believe, Miles Davis, mm. and he takes and those he, remixes. He remixes. I heard the Jimi Hendrix remix. So I heard. I heard Dr- yeah, that was about fifteen years ago. There was a, Probably. a great Jimi Hendrix remix. It's a very like sort of jungle, yeah. throbbing bass, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. lots of you know very yeah. spatial. He did another record called Imaginary Cuba, where he went with one of these portable recorders and recorded churches you know from outside the church people singing and then he mixes in the insect sounds it's just fantastic stuff um anyway so bill laswell who's become one of my favorites uh, obviously um orchestra baobab do you know them from yeah. senegal yeah, who yeah, play yeah. cuban songs yeah but yeah. they're senegalese lots of african music hmm. yeah He's uh, Mark's an amazing guy. Mark should be doing a podcast. I keep telling him. Hopefully, he'll listen to this one and get some inspiration. Um, so, you know, your music to me sounds, and, and you're confirming it. Like you're very, um, you're a very thoughtful, spiritual kind of guy. In fact, I think it's Dreamboats where you say all is love. Is that the look at the sky? Yeah, that's. So it's it's so beautiful and and um, mm. true and pure. It, mm. it feels essential mm. to me. Like you just took everything out that didn't need to be there. It's very poetic. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. It it feel. I mean, I'm not a songwriter, so I don't know how this works. But that to me feels like a song that came to you in a dream or just dropped out of the sky into your head. It doesn't feel worked on, which may just be the, the idiocy of the non-musicians. Well, that there. chorus came quite suddenly, I think. Um, I was driving my car along the, the highway coming from the northern suburbs. I don't know if you know the northern suburbs of mm-hmm. Cape Town, but there's this, you come up from, from a hill down towards the bay in the city and, and it was one of those days where there was just amazing clouds. Mm. And I, I don't know, I just, I just was very kind of blown away by this view and that that night I went to go and jam the song with my band and it felt like it needed something else and that just came out look at the sky you know it was just and I like the way you sort of 
trip over the l -l -l look at the sky, and, and there's another one, m -m my, my, look at the sky, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah. it's beautiful. Hey, hey, feel the rain. Hey, hey, yeah. I think that might have been my Neil Young influence, because I, <laughs> I was very... Um, Russ never very, sleeps. Yeah, very into Neil Young when I was in high school. Yeah, hey, that's a pretty... I look back at high school at some of the bands I was into, and I would say, you know, the ones I'm still proud of, Neil Young, certainly. Absolutely. Pink Floyd, yeah, yeah. you know, no shame at all yeah. with Pink Floyd. Uh, who no, there's something amazing about Neil Young. For me, it, it feels like there's no screen between him and his audience. He's, he, he, a lot of people, it seems to me, a lot of people are kind of hide, hiding behind a style. Yeah. And hiding behind some kind of artifice, some, you know, like a husky voice or some... Whereas it feels to me like Neil Young is not doing that. He's, he's completely, his emotions are just completely coming through. Yeah. It's him, it's him. It's not, it feels like that to me. It's not Tom Waits. It, to me, Tom Waits feels like the example of what you're saying. I, I like Tom Waits. Um, as He seems like a cool guy. I've yeah, seen yeah, him yeah, in some yeah, cool yeah, yeah. But when I hear him singing, it sounds like a guy pretending to be Tom Waits. But he is. But that's also, uh, Bob, you could say the same about Bob Dylan. Oh, well, he said it, right? Yeah, He's yeah. admitted which it, is, that which he was is, a which is, which is perfectly valid, you know. That, yeah. and, and that's another way of being an artist. But for me personally, I guess just in terms of what I was needing emotionally when I was exposed to, to Neil Young's music, it just, it just gave me so much of what I needed in terms mm. of these are feelings you can have and you can take them and you can experience them yourself. Yeah, you know? and admit to them publicly, exactly. shamelessly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's incredible courage in that. Yeah. He's, uh, you're reminding me of when I told you earlier I was in LA pitching this TV show uh, a few years ago and the, I was supposed to be the host of the show, right? So when I sat down with the producer to, to work it up and what are the episodes going to be and mm. you know what's the look going to be and all that kind of bullshit that you do, um, he said to me, so what's, what's your on-screen persona going to be? I said, uh, what do you mean? He said, well, who are you going to be? Mm. I said, um, it's me, you know, <laughs> authentic, right? Yeah. He said, oh, oh okay, you're going to be authentic right. in air quotes <laughs> it's like what are you talking about he said he said look you know you're going to be on tv you're going to be a public figure you have to be the same every week you have to be consistent you can't be funny one week and a downer the next week right you can't be like completely relaxed and loose one week and kind of uptight the next week you have to like pick who you're going to be and be that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I learned a lot about uh, television from that experience. Because the one thing they're scared of is true authenticity. Because, you know, it's the same thing in music, I'm sure. You get a sound, then all the pre if that succeeds, then all the pressure is do that again. Mm. Just, just a, cha a little change to make it fresh, but that's do mm. the same thing. Mm. And any true artist is like, fuck no, I want to go into, you know, my electric guitar phase and, yeah. or my Jesus phase or whatever it is. Or, or not really want to have a sound because a sound in a way is just another, it can, well, I mean, it, you know, again, it's like that thing of Tom Waits versus Neil Young. Yeah. That's a sound, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a thing which, is, which some people are into and I think it's a great thing to be into, but if it's, to me, that's not the main thing. Right. To me, the main thing is the song and the emotion that comes through um, 
That's what excites me. Yeah. So, who, what other influences would you? Well, I love Bob Dylan. I mean, when you know, yeah. when I was a, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, and then in my early days of university, Bob Dylan and Neil Young and Paul Simon were were big influences. And that was before Paul Simon did the Graceland thing and all that. No, well, that was actually, but yeah, yeah, it was. That is after Graceland. But um, I kind of got into Paul Simon a, a little bit before Graceland. And then, yeah, because, you know, I, I think it was when I was about 16, the, the concert in the park was on TV or someone got it, brought a video of it or something mm. and we watched the concert in the park and I was just, oh, wow, you know, what great yeah. songs. This, this is amazing. And then um, that is around the time I had my first guitar and then my parents gave me the Paul Simon complete songbook. Uh-huh. And it was basically how I learned to play the guitar because they had the little pictures of the chords, uh-huh. you know, and I could f- nice. sit there and figure out the chords. Um, and I'd come home from school and sing those songs, and then I started learning some Neil Young songs. What were your favorite early Paul? Uh, the very songs? first one I learned was "Slip Sliding Away." Ah, it's a beautiful song. <laughs> uh, did you understand it as a young guy? Did you understand how sad that song is? Kinda. Oh, the man came yeah. and kissed his son yeah, as he yeah, lay yeah, sleeping, yeah. and they turned around and headed home again. Yeah, oh, I, my I don't God. think I, 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 I think I got it in a in, on a kind of semi-conscious way. Yeah, um, and then the boxer, of course, because everyone—that's the one everyone wanted wanted you to play when you had your guitar, yeah. like somebody's barbecue. Or that make you want to go take a bus in America somewhere. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, when I was in America, and I was driving from Philadelphia to New York, and I hit the New Jersey Turnpike, and there I was it like, is. "Oh my goodness, this is <laughs> the New, New Jersey, Jersey turnpike. turnpike." There it is. Yeah. Um, what about Kodachrome? Yeah, yeah. I love that song. Great song. It's one of my first. Yeah, I was a little no, the, kid when that came out. But the, the, mm. the, the, you know, that song taught me a whole lot about how to construct a song because the way he modulates, he changes keys in a very clever way on the, between the chorus and the, and the verse. Um, and that is like, hang on, there's a whole clever thing going on here. And then I started looking at the way the Beatles Mm. put their songs together yeah and it's a oh, it's an incredible skill to be able to use chords that aren't just you know so much of, of of western music is based around three or four chords and it comes from the blues and it's the yeah. you know just like say you're in c so c g f a minor you know or with maybe an e minor how and many different ways are there to put yeah, four chords together but then together? then you know you go into a completely different key in one song in a way that no one really notices they just feel it it doesn't jar yeah. it just glides and it uh-huh. lifts your emotions in a, you know Kodachrome is just a great example of that you know I was in Zimbabwe the other day in this hotel and um, I love the Beatles I, you know I, I yeah. mean as anyone yeah, yeah. who understands music Absolutely. even a little would yeah. love the Beatles but uh, Silly Love Songs came on uh, Paul, uh, Paul the Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney yeah. solo song yeah. and it's been stuck in my head ever since oh, right. as about five days ago and it pretty much makes me hate Paul McCartney it, right. it almost why yeah, the yeah, stupidness yeah. of that song this it's not just that it's stupid it's that it's 
it's an earworm. It's so catchy and yeah. so bad yeah, yeah, that yeah, it yeah. almost destroys. But I mean, they, his genius is in that. Yeah. The, ability, the ability to create those earworms. But it's an evil genius in that song. <laughs> and, and Ebony and Ivory, yeah, oh, fuck cool. that song. Yeah, 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 Stevie yeah. Wonder, I love you, but come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I used to, when I was a little kid, I, my father sings and plays piano, and he's like the guy at the party who would always sort of... And um, I think I grew up with some shame around that. There was some, I've got some hang up about that. Mm. And uh, I used to have dreams of nightmares. And I'm talking when I was probably eight, nine, ten years old, something like that. I would have nightmares about singing a song and in the middle of it, realizing that it was a really shitty song. Right. But I was already singing it and I had to, you know, keep going. Right. I don't know what that's about. That's a weird thing. As I'm not a perfectionist, mm. I'm not particularly afraid of, you know, I've spoken in front of thousands of people. I don't really get too uptight about that. I'm pretty, mm. in fact, I like that. Uh, I like performing and I like the feedback of audiences and all that. But there, I, I had this sort of elemental terror of mm. performing something that wasn't good. Mm. Huh. Yeah, I haven't thought about that in a long something time. Something to do with your father, I guess. I guess, but he's a really good singer and he had so much fun. And, and one of the things I look, you know, I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but one of the things I regret is, is the negative energy I blasted toward him. You know, if he was singing, like we'd be in the car driving somewhere and he'd be singing along and he'd fuck up the words and just plow through it and didn't matter. And I'd, I'd cringe, mm. I'd, oh, you know, you fucked up the words and you don't even know the words, how can you? You know, and I was so judgmental and such a nasty little prick. Mm. And then I moved to Spain years later as an adult and, you know, lots of people who don't speak a word of English are singing along with all the songs on the radio. Yeah. And, it, and the shamelessness was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it made me reassess and look back at myself and, and wonder why I was such a little, a little I don't prick. know, I mean, I, I've had a similar thing with when, when a song is really precious to you and so you get the sense that someone else doesn't get what's so amazing about that song mm. and they carelessly mess up the words. I don't know if it's Maybe like that's that. it, a lack of yeah, you know, respect I, for I, it. I remember yeah. hearing, it was in the soundtrack to a movie when Annie Lennox was singing a cover of Don't Let It Bring You Down by Neil Young. And she got the words wrong. And it's like, only castles burning. She, she, uh. she, she, somewhere in there, she just got it wrong. And I was like, come on. And that's a recording. And, 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 no, no, I mean, that's fine. You know, it's, and they could but have, I'm just saying in terms of having that reaction. Right. I have that reaction, you know. Yeah. It's fine, you know. Who cares what the words are? But to right. me, it was like, damn you. You know, like you're going to sing a Neil Young song. You've got to get it right. <laughs> well, yeah, or if you're going to fuck around with it, then fuck around with it in a way yeah, but that... Yeah, it's kind of like she hadn't really checked and, and, yeah. and it felt to me... Anyway, I mean, yeah, no, I, I, know. I, I love covers that are better than the original. Yeah, yeah. Like, do you know the song Hey Ya by Outkast? Yes. You ever listen to the words to that? Yes. So it's, you know, the, the music's very like, hey, yeah, everybody shake yeah. it like a Polaroid, everybody's dancing. Yeah. The words are about the difficult, the, the impossibility of modern relationships. Right. My baby don't mess around because she loves me so, and this I know for sure, 
But does she really want to, but can't stand to see me walk out the door? <laughs> right. Why try to fight the feeling because the thought alone is killing me right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank God for mom and dad for sticking two together because we don't know how. Right. It's, it's a tragic yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's this whole the thing, the chorus where he says, um, what's cooler than being cool? Ice cold. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if they say is and everyone just thinks it's a, it's a fun party dancing. song they can do the actions to <laughs> shake it like a Polaroid picture. <laughs> but there's this dude in like Nebraska. No, he's in like New Mexico or Arizona or somewhere. Uh, what's his name? O Obadiah Parker, I think is his name. Big dude with a beard does um, acoustic version. I think I heard it on a podcast. Oh, uh, I think I think it might have been Radiolab. Ah, good. Um, had it in the background, or one of those podcasts. He really nails it. Yeah. He sings it the way it should be sung, you know? It's yeah. beautiful, yeah. And then, of course, there's uh, All Along the Watchtower, which, you know, uh, yeah, of Hendrix, yeah. I think, really yeah. pulled that one. Totally. Yeah. What are other good... Have you ever heard, um, you know the song Layla? Derek and the Derek Dominoes, Clapton, yeah. Clapton's version, solo version that he did later. Okay. Do you, do you know that it's on the Unplugged record? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's really nice. I love that song. Yeah, yeah. But he wrote that song. Yeah, yeah. It, when he was with Derek and the yeah. Dominoes, right? Yeah, it's on and Layla and other love songs. Mm. Yeah. In fact, I had a psychic experience with that song mm. when I was, uh, it was my first psychic experience. I was probably eight, I think, eight years old. And I was visiting, um, my grandmother was in the hospital and we were in New York and uh, I was vaguely aware of what was going on. I knew people were upset and she was sick and she was in the hospital and whatever. And my uncle had to run some errands and he took me with him and we were going around and, and uh, that song was on the radio and it had just, we, we pulled up to park somewhere and it had just gone into the piano part, you know? And uh, I opened the door to the car and the sun glanced off the sidewalk and sort of blinded me for a second. And suddenly I knew that she had just, she had died. Mm. I just felt it and I started crying and like really, and he was, what, what happened? He thought I'd hurt myself or something. And, and I told him grandma died and, yeah, and then we went back to the house later and it turned out that she had and, mm. and he sort of figured it out that yeah it was half an hour ago and yeah it was so and then I but I didn't know who the song was by but then you know years as the years went by I would hear that song on the radio like oh that's that song mm. and I'd always wait for the end for them to say who it was and for years they didn't oh, say okay. and it became a big thing in my life like I need to know who wrote that song and this is obviously before the days of internet and you could just find out anything in an instant mm. and then finally when I was 16 or so I found out who wrote the song mm. yeah yeah Layla. sure and when it gets to that piano part I guess it just takes you right back oh, to that feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how songs can do that. Um, there was a great thing that someone posted on Facebook. Um, you know Louis C.K.? I love Louis C.K., yeah. 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 And um, he, he was talking about um, how, you know, so often you get this, you, you, you get confronted by difficult feelings or you know, sadness and the first thing we do is we, we reach for our 
social media platforms and you know so anyway he was talking about how he was driving along um, somewhere in New Jersey or I don't know where it was and this Bruce Springsteen song came on um, Jungle Land and there's a bit at the end where he starts doing that kind of Bruce Springsteen howl that's yeah. so evocative and yeah. he said this 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 it got to that part of the song and he just felt this incredible sadness and his instinct was to stop the car and just SMS or WhatsApp as many people as he could so he could get someone replying back and then he would feel cool, you know. <laughs> and he made a decision in that moment to not do that and just sit and see what happened. And he said he just started crying. Mm. Um, and he said it was, you know, it was, it was sad, but then it became beautiful. Um, and he said that's the problem with the world we live in now is we don't have a chance to sink into our feelings because there's always a little like some some distraction on social media or just the way the world is it's it's designed to just barrage us with entertainment all the time we never have to be alone in our you know he also talked in in, in the same interview about how we all sit with this hole inside ourselves this this this, this knowledge that we're going to die alone and it's probably going to be painful and and that we're all alone anyway and we you know that that life is just really lonely and we're doing all we can to avoid feeling that feeling all the time and he said it's so important that we learn to go in there because you're not going to feel the true highs of what it feels like to be in this world if you're not going to feel the lows mm. Um, and I really loved that. I wish, yeah, I wish everybody could see that interview. I, I, he was on some some talk show, one of those, um, like late night. Conan yeah, yeah, one of those. In fact, it could have been Conan. Yeah, he did a thing on Conan a couple of years ago, which um, you may have seen it, and it sort of triggered the book that I'm writing now. Mm. Uh, it's called Civilized to Death. Okay. And. It was the bit he did where he's on an airplane and there's Wi-Fi. And he's like, fuck, I didn't know there was Wi-Fi in airplanes. Right. That's amazing. So I was sitting there checking my email and watching YouTube videos. And then something went wrong and the stewardess said, oh, sorry, we have to reset the router and Wi-Fi will be off for a few minutes. And the guy next to me leaned over and said, this is bullshit. Right. <laughs> you remember that one? Yeah, did yeah. you see that? I don't think I saw that one, but it, it uh, totally... You got to watch that one, because then he goes into this whole thing about how, like, you know, first of all, you're sitting in a chair in the oh, sky. I did see that, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, but the seat doesn't go back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he ends it by saying, these days everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's sort of the core of this book I'm writing. Yeah. You know, why is it that nobody's happy if, in fact, everything's amazing? Yeah. What's yeah. going on? No, and um, Eddie Izzard, I was watching him the other night, you know. Yeah. And he, yeah. He was talking about the word awesome and how it's, mm. you know, it's lost its meaning and, and you know now people talk about awesome hot dogs and he says if you see an awesome <laughs> hot dog you're not going to be able to speak because it's awesome. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Much less chew and swallow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true words. So you grew up here in Cape Town? Uh, well, I was born in Cape Town but there's a city about a thousand kilometers up the coast towards Durban called East London. Mm. And that's where I've, I spent the first 10 years of my life. How old are you? I am 47. 
So you were, so apartheid ended when? In, in your 20s? Um, yeah, so I grew up under apartheid basically. When I was in high school, um, that was kind of the height of the, the, the kind of unrest preceding the fall of apartheid. So like ANC bombs going off? Yeah, and, and just the state of emergency, you know, the country was un under a state of emergency and there was just, you know, troops in the townships. Yeah. Um, and my school, my high school, we could see out towards the Cape Flats and I remember, you know, at hockey practice one afternoon seeing smoke rising from the Cape Flats and just thinking, okay, that's prob probably something connected with it, with it, with with the unrest, and it could even be someone being necklaced because there were these necklace murders right. where they would put a car tire around I someone's neck that. and then yeah. burn them. Um, horrific. So that was all going on, but we we were very shielded from it because the you know the the, the press wasn't really supposed to report on a lot of that stuff, and everything was fed to us by the. The, you know the white news service the SABC and so you got a very filtered version of reality but my parents were quite politically aware my dad was actually a, he was he was a, a member of the, a member of parliament in the official opposition to, to the nationalist party so it was oh really um, and so we you know we'd get these videotapes smuggled in you know the BBC and we'd, we'd I remember seeing uh, you know a lot of what was actually going on um, but growing up under apartheid, I mean, you know, it, it, it's the only black people I would ever come into contact with in my entire childhood and, and teenage years were people who cleaned the house or worked in the garden. Right. And so what that does to you as a human being, you know, on an unconscious level, um, I think, you know, the real racism is, is unconscious. And, right. And, um, I think that's in me, you know, I've got these reflex judgments against people that, that I need, you know, the, I need to watch, I need to, you know, I can, I, I'm not a racist in my actions, but my unconscious is racist because, of, because that's, how, that's what happens when you grow up in a segregated society. Yeah. Even, though, even though I rationally uh, know that it's wrong right. and, and, and I don't act as a racist because, partly because I'm aware of this unconscious reflex. Um, it is it is difficult though when because the racial issues get intertwined with class issues yes. you know just essentially they're yeah. more or less the same yeah and then if you have reactions um uh, you know like you assume someone who crosses the street if they're black are more likely to be dangerous. Yeah. Maybe they cross the street because they want to rob you. Yeah. If it's a white dude, it might not even occur to you. But given the history and the class situation in South Africa, yeah. statistically, it is more likely that yeah, you would be and robbed. It's, it, what, what, what's this, the, the heuristics? It's, it's mm. how our brains work. We, 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 we'll do the, our brains have to take the shortcut. Yeah. We can't um, ha hold a little conference in our mind right. on race issues every time we're confronted <laughs> right. by someone in a dark street. Yeah, Louis C.K. is good on this as well. Right. He's, yeah, he's wonderful. Uh, do you know George Carlin? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's sort of the, the godfather of people like Louis C.K. I had his daughter on this podcast recently. Okay. She's wonderful too. She's, she's really cool. 
Yeah, I've had a lot of uh, interesting kids of interesting people. Uh, Timothy Leary's son. Oh, okay. Yeah, Zach Leary. I don't think I've put that one up yet, but uh, interesting. Last week I was in on the safari and uh, I spoke with uh, the guide who's from Namibia, a mm -hmm. uh, black guy, and we talked the same things you're, you're mentioning here, how those things get into your subconscious yeah. when you're a child and yeah, yeah, yeah. you're kind of stuck with them for yeah, life. I mean, so level. I had this experience two weeks ago where I, I rent my spare bedroom in my house out on Airbnb mm. and I recently changed my setting because there's this thing called Instant Book where people can book without first having a conversation with you. Mm. And I, you know, I did this with the idea that you're more likely to get bookings. Um, so this guy booked and it was late on Sunday night that he booked and he was coming the next day. And, I, and it was a black guy with dreadlocks. Um, and immediately that triggered all the stuff in me like, can I trust this guy? How do I know he's not a guy from a local guy from a poor area who's set up a, a you know, it just right. the paranoia, the white paranoia, I suppose. And all this, all this unconscious stuff kicks in. Right. Um, anyway, he came, and it, it it was actually probably the nicest guest I've ever had. Mm. We we really hit it off. He loved my music. We you know I sang songs to him. We walked on the mountain. It, I felt like I made a friend. Um, but it's just that whole experience was just so so illustrative of what we're talking about here yeah. with with these. Yeah, the way our brains trick us in a way, but at the same time, maybe it serves something that was useful in the past or, uh, or can still be useful, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're in the jungle, you see a snake, you jump. Yeah. You don't say, okay, well, let's think about this. Is this yeah. a poisonous snake or not yeah. a poisonous snake? You just, any sort of movement in the underbrush is, yeah. you know, sets off alarms. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's an example of the kind of shortcut thinking we're talking about. But also, I think it's really important for people to become self-aware about that stuff because, um, like in a country like South Africa, where there's where race is quite an issue, um, I think that the first thing people need to do is acknowledge their unconscious racism, because then you can start behaving in an, in, with some kind of integrity with yourself in your response to the world and start right. making allowances for, for this stuff. And, and I came across this thing on the web which, which tests your unconscious racism. It's a very clever test which mm. flashes black and white faces and positive and negative words. And with your mouse, you've got to, in the first half of the test, you've got to move the black faces and the positive words the one way and the white faces and the negative words the other way. And mm. in the second half of the test, you've got to move the black faces and the negative words the one way and right. the white faces and the positive words the other way. And it measures the split second that it takes you to think about it each time. Yeah. And sure enough, across the board, whether you're black or white, it turns out most people are prejudiced against black people, even black people, in terms of associating negative words with black faces right. in that split second that it takes you to make the decision. And it's something you can't cheat on. It's a test that, that is, fa is foolproof. Mm. Um, and I posted this on Facebook. Guys, everyone should be taking this test. You know, this is what we need to do is real, you know, acknowledge our unconscious racism. And I just got such negative reactions from everybody. Like, oh, well, if you need to take that test, it means you're a racist. You know, and it's kind of like, yeah. you know, like, 
sort of shaming me for bringing it up. Right, know? right. Um, <laughs> well, I've, I've been living in the U.S. for the last few years, and yeah. talk about shame. Oh, my God, the shame patrol is yeah. out of control there. Yeah. And it's interesting, and, and I don't mean to equate this with, with racism, but it's interesting, in, when I go to the U.S., I am acutely aware of um, sort of negative assumptions that women make about me who don't know me. Right. Because there's so much fear in that culture and because there's so much sex sexual shame in that culture, a lot of times, you know, I'll be walking down the street and let's say I'm, I'm, uh, there's a woman walking in the same direction and I'm walking behind her. Mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S., she'll turn around and look at me and then cross the street. Right. Like assuming that I'm some sort of a predator. Yeah. Whereas in Spain, that would never happen. Right. There's, that vibe just isn't there in Spain. Sure. You know? sure. So I, I really feel that difference. And so sometimes when that happens, I think, man, this must be a little taste of what it's like to be a black guy. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people just sort of cross in the street, avoid you. Yeah. You know, you walk into a shop and the, the owner's sort of watching you a little more closely. You can see him watching you in the mirror if you're going to steal something. Yeah. There, there are these assumptions about yeah. who you are. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to whine about white people's problems. <laughs> There's enough of that going on. So what's uh, what do you think from your perspective in South Africa? Do you have a a feeling for where the world is going? Do you feel feeling for where the world is going? Yeah, are things? I mean. I'm, because I'm writing this book, Civilized to Death, and it's it's kind of a downer in some ways because yeah. I feel like the world is, the shit is, right now the shit is hitting the fan even as we speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, the, well, the climate. Um, yeah. I, th I think that we are, you know, we, we've evolved this intelligence which has allowed us to develop technology, but it, it's not, we're not, we're clever, but we're not clever enough. Yeah. Um, I think we're clever but not wise. Yeah, exactly. So, so our intelligence has got us to the point where we can potentially destroy our own environment. We can split the atom, which could, you know, we can destroy ourselves in an instant if we want. Um, but are we going to graduate to the next level where we get beyond that point? You know, there's a there's a theory of, you know, why why if if, if life is is, is theoretically so abundant in the universe that we never spotted any other intelligent yeah. life. And What's they, that called? The, the, great, the great filter. They talk about the, the Turing. Is that the Turing conundrum? Um, no, that is the, it's not Turing, it's it, another guy. Yeah, no, I was just the, writing the, about the, this the, recently. The Fermi paradox. Fermi paradox, the that's Fermi what paradox. it is, yeah. And um, so they talk about the great filter, which is an event that's so unlikely that no life ever gets beyond it or very rarely gets beyond right. it. So the great filter could be the transition from inorganic to organic matter on a planet. Yeah. And maybe that's, only, that's so rare that it's only ever happened once in the whole universe. And that's us. Or maybe the transition, the, the great filter is the transition from unicellular to multicellular, which is a very difficult step in evolution. Maybe that again has only happened once in the entire universe and that's us. But it could be that the great filter is the development of technology and then making it through that without destroying yourself. Yeah. Um, and that could be where we're at. And maybe that's why we're not seeing intelligent life. Or maybe we are seeing intelligent life, some people maintain. Um, but, 
you know, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence with the radio telescopes has picked up nothing in 50 years and maybe that's the reason because, you know, as, as soon as you split the atom and develop the technology to destroy your environment, that's what happens on every you do. other planet. Well, I, uh, I was examining that and I've come up with a, a, a new option that when intelligence is developed and technology is developed and reaches roughly the point we're at now, which is uh, either runaway technology that ultimately replaces biological matter. Yeah. So we become more and more merged that's with technology. Well, I think that's where we're going, absolutely. That that's seems to be where inevitable. we're going. Um, and there, of course, there are all sorts of you know risks of, of self-destruction. And and the thing is, even if even if that path is successful, it's self-destructive from a human perspective because ultimately, there won't be anything human left. It'll just be technological. But we are intelligence. Everything you know, the DNA is intelligence. So it doesn't really matter if it's biological or existing in. Uh, electrical uh, silicon or uh, I think we're more than intelligence I think we're more than patterns of, of DNA uh, but, but anyway yeah, we'll, we'll get back to huge, that uh, yeah discussion. that's a big one yeah. but what I was thinking is the other the other option is some societies reach this point where they say hmm okay we've we've got technology now to generate all the energy we need from the sun and the waves in the ocean and geothermal and whatever. Yeah. We, we don't need to keep burning stuff. We yeah. don't need to split atoms. Mm. We could simply incentivize population reduction by guaranteeing lifelong income to people who don't have kids. And then in a few generations, we get global population down to 20, 30, 40 million people, mm. which is easily sustainable. Mm. And we can live in paradise mm. for the rest of time. Mm. And we don't need to go to other planets. We don't need to do anything. We can just hang out here, fuck around, which is what we're designed to do, mm. swing in our hammocks, have lots of sex, play lots of music, dance and have parties and tell mm. stories to our kids. That's all there is. That's all there's ever been. I don't know what we're running on this wheel trying to find, but we've never found it. Nobody's ever been any happier than you are when you're just hanging out, having a good time, eating good food, partying with your friends and, you know, making love. There's, there is no happiness beyond that. And so maybe we reach a point, maybe organisms reach a point where they say, we can have it all. Let's just stop here. Maybe that explains the Fermi paradox. Maybe, yeah, no, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's my one glimmer yeah, of hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I keep pushing on in the 
enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, You don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osman, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. Uh, He's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. There's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And, of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at ShoreDesignT-Shirts.com. And, of course, all the shirts that are at ChrisRyanPhD.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, Say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. 
say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation, trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say? Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Go down. We'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground. 